This morning uh, in our lesson, we spent a little bit of time in Ephesians chapter 4 right at the end of the lesson, and I wanted to turn back there uh, because we looked at a few verses right at the very beginning, and we looked at a few verses right at the very end of that chapter, and uh, what I thought we could do tonight in our lesson is go through it uh, a little bit more as we discuss the idea of unity, as we discuss the idea of how Christ transforms our relationships, and particularly our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. Uh, Ephesians, as I mentioned uh, in the lesson this morning, I think Ephesians is intentionally written with that idea uh, of writing a letter. I think it's primarily addressing Gentiles who are being added to the body of Christ. And it's, it's almost a welcome letter from Paul, who's a representative Jewish Christian, saying, now that we are together in Christ, here's what that means. And as he does so, he discusses the beauty and the significance and the exaltation of the church. So throughout Ephesians, he says lofty and, and glorious things about the church. Uh, even, even right at the end of chapter 3, there's this beautiful uh, doxology. A doxology is a, it's a fancy word for like a, a word of glory or praise that's given to God. And every once in a while, you'll see uh, Paul will be writing a letter. And then like in the middle of it, he'll stop and say something like, now to him who is able to do far more abundant beyond all we can think or ask, or to him who deserves glory forever and ever. Like, it, it'll be when he stops and says some word of glory or praise to God. Well, he does that right at the end of chapter 3 as he finishes kind of the first part of Ephesians talking about how awesome and incredible it is that we have been united together and joined into this glorious and exalted and lofty body that is the church. He stops to offer this word of praise. In verse 20, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we may think or ask, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you want to see the glory of God, you should be able to see that glory in Christ Jesus, and you should be able to see that glory in the church. He says that the glory, uh, to him be the glory, which is in the church and in Christ Jesus. That's that is a very lofty uh, description of what the church is. In fact, earlier in Ephesians, and we won't really go through it now, but he talks about how Christ was seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And he talks about how Christ is elevated above all rule and authority and about how Christ, all things were put uh, in subjection under his feet. He is the head over all things to the church. And then he goes on to say that those same descriptions of the church. He says like in chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, among them too, we formerly walked, uh, talking about among the sons of disobedience, we walked uh, and we lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. Now, notice the, what he had said earlier was Christ, who had died, was made alive again in the resurrection. We who have died have been made alive together with Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Like, you just look at some of the language he uses. He's saying that we were dead, but then with Christ, we were made alive. With Christ, we were raised up. With Christ, we've been seated in the heavenly places. 
And that's quite a thing to say, especially like when you look around and it's like, I mean, it looks like I'm still right here. You know, it looks like I'm still uh, in this place. Uh, but in the church, we have been elevated to share in this glory with Christ. It's a way of describing the cosmic beauty of the church, even the unseen beauty that is actually taking place. You know, and I, there are a lot of times in the Bible where that which is unseen is spoken of and, and perhaps what our eyes are capable of grasping you would never fully realize the depth of what is truly there. I think, I think, for example, when it comes to the temple uh, of ancient Israel, this might be one of those things where, you know, the temple, you see, like, if you were to actually just look into the Holy of Holies, you would just see, like, a quiet, dark room with a box there and some gold cherubim. Like, it wouldn't look, like, you might, you know, you might want to be quiet and it would be holy and reverent, but it would just look like a, like a room. And I think in Isaiah 6, you get this picture of Isaiah before the throne of God, and he describes the unseen aspect of what's really there. And what you see there is it's the very throne of God, and it's full of glory and brightness, and un, un, you know, uh, it's full of cherubim or, or seraphim in that passage. Uh, and there's, there's uh, the, the, the smoke that is filling it, and the, the robe of God is leading out, and it's like, all of that is unseen to the naked eye, but there are these moments when the veil gets pulled back and you get to see what's really there. And I think sometimes we can think about the church and we just think about it like as we see it with the naked eye. And it's like, you know, we, we tell people it's not a building, but I mean, that's the thing you see when you, we call up the church and we, we come here and then we see and we see a bunch of people sitting around and, you know, it's just kind of normal people and we sit around and we sing songs and some of them sound good and sometimes we struggle through songs and, and we hear someone teach and sometimes he does an all right job and sometimes he messes things up and bungles his words and like, like you look and it's like you just see, it's just, it's just people and it's just, you know, flawed people and sometimes we can walk away from that thinking, or perhaps failing to realize and grasp the actual depth and beauty of what really just happened when we come together and worship. And I think Ephesians is, with Paul's words, he's like removing that veil so that you can see there's actually something glorious and exalted and wonderful that takes place in the church. Far more than the eye could ever even imagine. Greater even than you could ever ask or think to ask. You know, and God is what, God is doing that. So the glory of God, when he gets to chapter 3 and verse 21, this, this ultimate concluding word of praise before he moves on to telling us now how to live in that church, is that the glory, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Like, and he, as we have been linked with Christ throughout this book, being even described as seated at the right hand of the heavenly places, now we're linked with Christ as the place where the very glory of God could be manifest. And so all of that is a way to say throughout Ephesians, and I've just skimmed a little bit, he, the deeper you get into the first three chapters, he does a lot of this. Uh, you begin to see that the church is given this elevated and glorious status. And if you have been invited into that, that's kind of a daunting responsibility. Uh, it, it could be intimidating to think, okay, so I'm now supposed to live with that amount of glory, with that amount of, of, of exaltation. That's, again, when I look around at other people, I see their flaws. And when I look at me, I see my flaws. And it's like, I don't know that I can do that. And so the next three chapters of the book are 
helpful uh, ways of going about doing that. But one of the key ideas for how to live in this way in the church is not to tear it apart. Not to let things like Jew and Gentile differences uh, rip the church in different directions. Like, that's how you harm the beauty of this bride of Christ. And so throughout Ephesians, he's going to be describing, uh, you know, what Christ has done for the church and how Jews and Gentiles have been welcomed into it, into one body and one family in this church. And then how it is that you live in such a way that you honor and maintain that beautiful unity. And so we started off uh, in the lesson this morning, we read the first three verses where he calls for an attitude that we have to have if we're ever going to maintain unity. It's like, if it weren't for the blood of Jesus, and if it weren't for the church, so many of these people that Paul is writing to, and so many of us here, we probably wouldn't have this relationship with each other. But we do have it because of what Christ has done for us. And so as Paul is writing this, he's writing to people who otherwise would have nothing to do with each other. And they would probably frustrate each other with their worldview and with some of their histories and some of the things that they emphasize and some of the things they believe. And so he's talking about how is it that you make these different types of people one family. And he tells them, this is chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk or live, depending on your translation there, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That glorious calling that we just talked about, he says, live in a manner worthy of that. Again, that's, a, that's quite a challenge uh, when you just have seen everything he just said about the church. And then he says in verse 2, you do that with all humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And if we can get those five words down, uh, we will we'll go a very long way towards unity. And with, even with those five words, we talked about them this morning, he then goes on to say in verse 3, and all of those, they're not going to come just naturally or easily. You won't do them all the time. You're going to have your, your moments where you're successful, your moments where you're, you're failing. But what you need to do is be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So even with all those words, they're going to take vigilance and diligence. They're going to take work. Like, you're going to have to put forth effort into doing this. You will not passively maintain unity. You have to work to maintain the unity that the Spirit has given us. The Spirit is what has caused this unity. The Spirit is what has joined people together in Christ. And now we have to live in such a way that maintains that glorious and beautiful unity. One of the ways that Paul then, in the next three verses, this is kind of a famous passage, um, he talks about that unity. He does so by saying, all of the things that we have done that have united us together into this one new family, and all of the things that, that we now live into and the things that we hold to be true as part of this one family. So for us, which is not true for the rest of the world, but for us, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all and through all and in all. So as you look at that language there, he gives these seven ones, these things that we have where we, you know, even as you look at them, you do see a couple of interesting features. Uh, you see like one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. You have Trinitarian language there uh, that describes what Christians have come to hold on to and what unites us together. Uh, you have the language of one body. And again, when you begin 
because of disagreements or because of, uh, of arguments or tearing the body into second bodies, third bodies, fourth bodies, many bodies. The body, by the way, throughout Ephesians is language of the church. Then you are causing harm to the body that Christ died for. And, you know, there, so often throughout the Bible, you'll see so many problems could have been easily solved if just have a Jewish church and a Gentile church, you know, and, and you won't have to butt heads anymore. You could just do two different things, right? You could. Uh, you could You could look at uh, 1 Corinthians, and, you, you know, Paul talks about, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, I'm, a, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. He mentions these different divisions in the church, and he could have said, I got an easy solution here. The Cephas folk go over there, the Apollos folk go over there, the, the Paul folk over here, and the Christ folk, well, you guys win. You know, you're, you're the good ones. But, uh, but like, you look at that, and so often you could suggest, well, just separate from each other. But that's never what he does. Instead, what he always challenges them to do is do the hard work of diligence working towards unity, rather than the easy work of just separating from the group that you don't get along with. And, and so when he says one body, that's a really important reminder. And it's also one of the I think one of the tragedies that we face in our modern Christian context is if you live in a world like they did, where the church was sparse and it was something that required sacrifice to be a part of, and it was something that uh, was, was unique in a city, you couldn't just abandon this church because you don't like it and then go find one you like. And then uh, in, in our in our society, like, you can. It's like, like, you can just be like, oh, I'm done with them. I'm going to go find these people. And if you don't like them, I'm done with them. I'm going to go find these people. And you can do that until you find, you know, the church that suits you. And if you're always making that transformation, that you're not ever changing. You're not ever being transformed uh, to, to maintain unity. You're just kind of finding whatever thing fits you, whether it's like, people can do that doctrinally and all of these different things. And again, that's not what Paul suggests either. What Paul suggests or what Paul states, is that in this environment, you do what it takes to make it work. You prioritize unity with the people who have been called into Christ with you, and you strive to make that work with them. You do so by using humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love. You be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and you remember that there is only one body, and you don't want to grow so frustrated with that body that you find yourself outside of her or that you leave that body. You work hard to be one with that body. He goes on, you work, there's one spirit as you were called in one hope. When you think of what we share, we share that hope of that glorious future day of resurrection. We share in that one hope of that glorious future day of the kingdom of God reigning supreme and in its fullest extent. That's something that as Christians, we all share that with one another. We share in the Holy Spirit that was given. That's something that unites us. That's something. So we're in one body. We share the Holy Spirit. We have one hope that, that that's something that no matter what Christian you talk to, no matter where they are in the world, that's something we should have in common is that hope we have for that future glorious day. The one Lord, no matter what group, you know, whether you're talking to Christians uh, here in the United States or if you leave the United States, you talk to some of the churches where we do mission work or you go throughout the world. If you're talking to a Christian and you ask them who is the one Lord, 
That's something everyone should give you the same answer to. Uh, these are some of the foundational, basic uh, principles of unity that we are united by. There is one Lord, and that is Jesus. There is one faith, and there is one baptism. And the idea of that one baptism is something that if you're a Christian, you, everyone who's a Christian should be able to look back at that moment of putting on Christ in baptism. And that is a rebirth process that we all share in together. So it's, again, no matter what Christian you're talking to, you should be able to ask them about that moment. And they should be able to tell you about their baptism and about what, what it meant when they were born again into Christ and what it meant when they were born in a, in a new way to become uh, people who are forgiven and become people who are one with Christ, who have entered into the church. These are either actions that we have done, like baptism, or they are beliefs that we hold dear, or they're just facts about reality in life as, as uh, within the church. But each one of them is showing that all Christians have these things that unite us together. Uh, and then he concludes in verse 6 with, in one God and Father who is above all and through all and in all. And one of the things that is so valuable about monotheism, the belief in one God, is that it is a belief that promotes unity. So what, what I mean is if you, if you were to look at an ancient Greek or an ancient Roman world, or not even just Greek and Roman, but any ancient society that was polytheistic, uh, you generally had like gods that ruled in certain locations and uh, over certain nations. And when those nations would fight, it was often like those gods were fighting each other. And whichever nation won, that god was the superior nation uh, or the superior god. And when you have a world like that, you don't have any reason to be united with those other people. Because the thing that's above you is also at war with those people. And so monotheism is a beautiful idea because it shows that all human beings, no matter where they live, no matter what nation they're a part of, no matter where they've come from, we all have in common that we were created by the one God who created us in his image and wants to unite us together. Like monotheism is uh, theologically rich because it, is, it calls us to be one people who have one God. And if I have my God and you have your God, well, once you get above us and you get to even our gods don't agree with each other, there's no reason for us to. Like, we should be enemies. But if there's one God who loves us all, then that gives us every reason to want to be together. So he ends with the idea of the one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. The one God is through and in and over everything that there is. And so that compels us to be united uh, together. Having said all of those ones, all of those things that are united, all of those things that we share, notice he does not say we share one gift or one ability or one uh, you know, uh, one view of the way things should be done. No, there's going to be diversity in a lot of those things. And that's what Paul moves on into next. Um, you're going to have some different views on things. You're going to have some different uh, talents, abilities, gifts uh, that are given to you. And so uh, to, the, to the next uh, section here, in verse 7, he says, but to each one of us, grace was given. That's another thing that unites us. Each one of us, grace was given to, uh, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in verses 8 through 10. Uh, 8 through 10 is one of the more difficult sections, I think, in, in Paul's letters to, to 
to translate in, on one hand to fully comprehend on the other. There's a number of different like varying interpretations of it, even in our Bibles. Um, but uh, if you look at verses 8 through 10, he quotes from Psalm 68 to demonstrate uh, this gift, the gifts that we have. And it says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And so uh, Paul's applying this to Christ. saying when Christ ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So those who were captives, he then led. And in so doing, he gave gifts to men. Then Paul adds this little note. Think about what it means when he says he ascended. That implies something. It applies in verse 9. What does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Okay, so that, that's the way my Bible translates that. This is one of those issues where you can see interpretation in the different translations. Uh, because you kind of have to take your best stab at it. It's hard to—you can't really translate without interpretation a lot of times. And so interpretation and translation go together. But mine says the lower parts of the earth. I think some of your Bibles might say the lower part, comma, the earth. Didn't your Bible say that? I think English Standard goes that route and a couple of them. So that, that is where mine is saying he went to the lower parts of the earth, perhaps like the parts under, like maybe like Hades or something like that. Other translations would say the lower parts, that is, the earth. The, earth's, the earth is the lower part under the heavens. And I'll be honest, I think that's more what he's talking about uh, in this passage is that he ascended above the heavens, because he says that in verse 10, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might uh, fill all things. So I think if he's talking about the heavens, the descending would be below them, the ascending would be above them. And I don't know if he's talking a lot about like going to like the, the underworld or, or anything like that in this passage. Some people think that it is, and you can make an argument that it is. Anyway, we're not going to get into that type of stuff right now. Uh, it is a tricky passage. It's also tricky because if you were to go to the Old Testament and read Psalm 68, uh, right there in verse 8, where it says he gave gifts to men, if you read Psalm 68, it says he received gifts from men. It's, it's, it's the opposite there. And so then you think, okay, so how does that happen? And then you end up going to the, the Septuagint, and you end up trying to figure out, uh, okay, where, so anyway, so there's a, there's a number of issues that come with this passage. Ordinarily, if a king conquered a people, and then he led their captives uh, out, uh, he would receive gifts as part of that. I think it's interesting that Paul, I think, would know about that phraseology of them receiving gifts, but when he applies it to Christ, he changes the language of it to say, but he actually gave gifts. And so it might be a way of Christ doing the thing, not that a normal king does, where he receives gifts, but where rather for Christ, when he leads out captives, he then gives gifts to men. And so that part would be a change in translation intentionally done to make a point about Christ being the giver of the gifts rather than the one who receives them. But again, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. The main point that Paul is making, I think, is that uh, we have gifts and they come from Christ. And so uh, as he mentions these gifts, there is a diversity in them. And as he's been talking about, we've been united in all of these things. There are some things that there is diversity in. But even that diversity has the purpose of, in our differences, drawing us back together to that main unifying idea. And so when you look at verses 11 through 13, he says, 
And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So he mentions these different roles and different gifts that that have been given, but how each of these, their purpose is not so that people will argue about whether apostles are best or prophets are best or evangelists. Are. It's not to cause division. No, every one of these works together so that, verse 12, the saints are equipped for the work of service. And service, by the way, is others-oriented. And so that we're each better able to serve one another. That's about helping and loving and unity, unifying one another. He says in verse 12, to the building up of the body of Christ, right? that is the church, so that the church can be edified and uplifted and built up like a, like a building on a sturdy foundation. He actually used that language earlier in uh, the end of chapter 2, where he talks about us being um, the, this temple that is built up and is built on the foundation of, of Christ and, uh, and um, or Jesus being the cornerstone and the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so that language of being built up, he comes back to right here. He's talking about the church being built up. And then he says in verse 13, until or so that we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so all of this diversity is even for the point of unity, for building up, to making us complete and mature so that we, notice that in verse 13, that final phrase, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He's already been connecting us to Christ over and over again, uh, whether we're seated at the right hand with Christ. Now we can attain the maturity of the full stature of Christ, which is, again, it's this glorious idea of being transformed into Christ's very image. That's what, that's what this whole ministry is about. That's what all of these things are about. And that is a unifying theme. So if that's what we're called to do, it's going to require some change on the part of every one of us. Every one of us is going to need to look at our lives and be like, okay, I should probably be less selfish then. Uh, okay, if that's going to happen, then I should probably not go out and do things that bring shame or dishonor or sin into this body. I should probably not do things for the sake of self-aggrandizement, uh, or I shouldn't do things that would alienate others. So when you get to verse 14, he says, so as a result— We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, uh, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head. That's Christ. So like instead of, okay, so now we're all one, I'm going to listen to every little idea that goes out there, and I'm going to be blown every which way. What happens if you believe everything you hear is that you end up believing this over here, and they end up believing this over here, and we end up drifting further and further apart from each other. He says, don't, don't be like, don't be like a child who just every wave takes you wherever it wants you, or the wind will blow you every which way. Have some sturdiness to you and speak the truth. Do it in love and speak the truth in love in such a way that you, again, you grow up into, verse 15, into all aspects, into him who is the head, to Christ. It's like trying to honor Christ and growing up in Christ uh, rather than uh, growing up in our own different ways, listening to everything we want to listen to. Verse 16, 
is where he goes back to this language of the body. When he says, for whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So if you look at the body, there's like a ton of different parts of the body. You know, there's every, there's every different ligament, there's different joints, there's different muscles, there's bones, there's organs, there's all of these different things, and they serve a different function, but you would like them all to work well. You wouldn't like some of the parts of your body to hate your body and uh, to try to leave your body. You want them all there, and you want them all to be working for the good of the body. Um, This illustration right here is a favorite of Paul's when he talks about diverse gifts. If you look at Romans 12, he gives a list of different gifts, and he goes to this body illustration. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, same thing. He gives a list of different gifts, and he goes to this body illustration. There are three passages where he uses this body illustration in the context of talking about gifts. Because just like, you know, the body, you have an eye that sees and a mouth that speaks and hands that grab things— Even though the eye and the hand have different functions in the body, you want them to do their jobs well because we're all on a team here. You know, if your body's not a team, that's a problem. We should all be working together. He says that, that's when he calls the church the body and that Christ is the head, it just flows very naturally into thinking about you might be one part of that body and someone else might be another part of that body and elders might be one part of that body and the evangelists and the teachers and the people who serve in this way and the people who serve in other ways, like all those different people might have different roles or functions in that body. But you want Christ, who is the head, to be able to use his body to still accomplish things on earth. And that's what we're doing. And that's our mission, and that's our goal. So as soon as we start fighting with one another, think about what we're doing to the body of Christ. We're being that—you ever have a a knee or something that hurts, and you think, man, I wish this thing would get fixed? Well, you don't want to be that knee that hurts. Uh, You don't want to be that thing that's causing the ache in the body of Christ. And so by emphasizing what Paul has been talking about— you can uh, join together and work well with the rest of the body. But again, it's going to require some transformation in order for us to do that. So verses 17 is following is where he starts talking about that transformation that takes place. You have to live in a different way than you used to live. Verses 17 through 24, and that'll get us to where verse 25 is, you know, we, were, we read this morning. Uh, but verses 17 to 24 is where he talks about putting aside that old self and becoming a new self who's going to live into this vision of being a united people in this glorious church. Whether you're Jew or Gentile or whatever difference you have, you're going to work together to put the church and to put Christ above yourself for one another. So verse 17, he says, So this I say, and I affirm together with the Lord. So, so Paul, that's, that's, that's a powerful way to, to start off your next, uh, your next point, is to say, and I'm going to tell you something, and not just me. Jesus is saying it right with me. I'm going to affirm this together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their own understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality and the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have been taught, if you have heard him, and if you have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. So basically what he's saying is you can't just 
enter into this glorious movement that we call the church and then continue living in the way that you have before? What happens when you bring these types of things into the church? When you bring things like impurity and greediness and sensuality and evil, well, then the church becomes full of sensuality and greed and evil. Like it, you don't want to turn the church back into the world. In, in order for you to be in the church, you have to have a transformation that takes place. And so that transformation, he's going to use baptism language to describe it. Uh, Paul will often, when he talks about the new life that we have, use a language that if you're not, if you're not paying attention, uh, you know, if you're not looking carefully, you might not notice that it's, it's baptismal references. But Paul goes, goes to them a lot. Um, what he's going to talk about in verse 22 is this idea of laying aside an old self and putting on a new self. That is language that Paul often uses to talk about what happens at baptism, where the old self was put away and the new self is risen up to be a new person. When he talks about us being made alive together with Christ, that's baptism language. We were dead and we were buried and we were raised up to a new life. And when that happened, our old self was crucified and we have been raised up to become a new self. So if you were to ask Paul, all right, Have we been raised up with Christ yet? Have we been resurrected with Christ? I think you would get two different answers depending on what he's talking about. Because there are some passages, the answer is no. I mean, we're still waiting to be raised up. That's what happens at the end. That's what the resurrection is. But there's another answer, which is, yes, you have been raised up with Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism and you were raised up with him to walk in newness of life, like that is is a, a type of living into that new life. And in order to have that second resurrection that happens after death, you have to have that resurrection which takes place while you're alive. The resurrection out of water is what uh, enters you into the family to have hope for that resurrection that takes place after death. And so Paul will use this language of resurrection, of being made alive, of putting aside an old self, of coming up with a new self. And he will use that language to describe the new life in Christ. And that is, that is language he uses of baptism. But anyway, when you get here in verse 22... He says that in reference to your former manner of life, that's the way you lived before you were baptized, before you became a Christian, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 24, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Notice that language. It has been created. You're a new creation. Um, If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, talking about us who have been saved by grace through faith, that you are his workmanship. You're You're his work of art, his craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we would walk in them. Like you've been created in Christ to be a new person when you were baptized. And right here, when he says in verse 24, you have been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You're a new person now. You've been created anew to live in this new life in the church that maintains the unity of the Spirit and walks worthy of the calling with which you were called. And so all of that is Paul's very highly exalted way of challenging us to recognize the beauty of what we are in when you talk about the church, and then also to live a transformed life because of that. And so this is where the lesson this morning picked up in verse 25. So we shouldn't lie to one another. 
In verse 26, we shouldn't stay angry with one another. In verse 28, we shouldn't uh, be lazy and we shouldn't steal. Instead, we should work so that we can share with other people. In verse 29, we shouldn't let unwholesome and negative and cruel and blasphemous and evil speech come from our mouths, but rather use words that build people up and that give grace to those who listen to you. Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, but rather put away all of those things that cause so much Uh, pain and hardship in verse 31 when he says bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander like think about slander and how is that ever helpful for unity when you go and you talk against other people and you tell you know like no when you're whenever you're doing that type of negative painful speaking you're just driving the wedge further in the body of christ don't do that put those things away from you in verse 32 If you want to maintain the unity of Christ, if you want all of our diverse gifts to work together into a beautiful chorus singing his praises, then you be kind to one another. You be tenderhearted. Forgive people when they fail. They're going to. You're going to. So be forgiving just as God in Christ forgave us. And then verse chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, a fragrant, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Christ gave himself for us because he loved us. And that ended up being the sacrifice that was a beautiful, sweet smell to God. When we give up our will or our selfishness for the sake of the body and for the sake of others, we're imitating Christ in that. That's a form of sacrifice. And I think it's an equally sweet taste uh, to, to, the, to, the, to, to God. And so as you read through, he then, I mean, he, the argument continues on from this point forward. Uh, but here we see how the second half of the book is prioritizing living in such a way that strives for unity. And that happens when you view these relationships we have in Christ as worth living for. If you don't it's very common, and I think in the religious world today, to think of our Christianity as just a me and God thing. You know, it's, it's between me and God, and uh, I have a personal relationship with Christ, and, you know, the church is kind of take it or leave it, but what really matters is whether you have this, this real connection to God. And I would say that's a great thing to have a real connection with God. But the gospel is actually about more than that. The gospel is actually about uniting people together into one family. And you saying, I'll just do it on my own without the family, is to step away from the truth of the gospel. It's to step away from the calling with which we've been called. It's to ignore whole books of the Bible, like Ephesians, which are about how to live in that. It's also, it's such a tragedy. Because one of the, you know, that whole idea of iron sharpening iron— One of the best ways to be transformed is to be around people who are different than you and to see the way that they live and and to be changed when they do. Instead of just getting mad every time someone does something different than you would have, be, be open to it. And you'll be able to see maybe there's even better ways out there. And slowly over time, you end up being transformed. And that often happens for the good. And so don't always think you're better off on your own or that you are a better church unto yourself. You're not. And Christ doesn't call you to be. Christianity is hard enough to do. To try to do it on your own was never part of God's plan. You have 
a collection of God's people that are united together, that love one another, help one another, serve one another, convict one another, strengthen each other, and we are called to live into that. And when you do, well, going back to the end of of chapter 3, when he says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. We're one of those generations where the glory of God can be seen in us when we live in that way. And so let's strive to do that. And if there's anyone here tonight who perhaps you have sin in your life or you would like the help in the prayers of the church, that's one of the things that we want to do for you, to encourage you, to love you, to pray for you, and to help you. If anyone would like to become a Christian tonight, please let that desire be known. We can study more about it and talk about it. But if you have the need, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.